0: Here we go. Welcome to the non-Christian Q&A. This is where I'm going to answer questions from non-believers. And that means you could be Muslim. You could be New Age. You could be pagan. You could be atheist, agnostic. You're just not a Christian. And I'd love to hear your questions. Don't hold back. Bring them now. Put them in the in the uh, live chat. And I'll be taking a bunch of them, 19 at least. And this will be the first question I, I pulled off of uh, Instagram. I think my wife pulled off Instagram and actually sent to me. Uh, The first question we're going to cover is this. You don't need religion to have morals. If you can't determine right from wrong, then you lack empathy, not religion. And so I I have a number of these memes. If we don't get enough questions from uh, a non-Christian perspective, I'll use the memes. And just in case anybody's wondering, if you're a Christian, but you have a question from a non-Christian perspective, you're welcome to put that in the chat. I want to answer the questions that non-Christians ask uh, that's the goal of today's live stream and and we do this every Friday at 1 p.m And you're always welcome to come and ask any questions from any perspective you like I just want to especially highlight those kinds of questions today So it, you know this I've seen before many times in different forms this particular meme that we're looking at on the screen While you guys are loading your questions in the chat You just put a capital Q to put your question in if it's your first time um, So it says you don't need religion to have morals um, This is obviously meant to be a response to religion or to religious people or claims that religious people are making sometimes when you respond to a claim though you you're misrepresenting people in that you you pretend they're making a claim they're not making and in this case at least with christianity we don't say you need religion to have morals like this is something and i I know some christians think fuzzy about this issue and they might even say that you don't have morals without religion. Well, no, actually, even even Christianity teaches non-believers have morals. This is in Romans 1. In fact, it's one of the reasons why God brings judgment to people is because they do know right from wrong, whether or not they're Christian, whether or not they have any particular religion. They know right from wrong. This is given as a granted in in Scripture. It is from, and, and also, when you look around the world, everybody's aware of moral truth, even though it's viewed slightly different ways in different cultures, but there's still a, a sort of a grounding of moral belief that is just permeates society, and only when you when you get into certain degrees of higher education can someone talk you out of it. I mean, it's and, and they shouldn't. I think that's that's lower education in higher education, but that does happen. So Christianity is actually teaching the opposite. It's teaching that you 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 have morals, right? So he says if you can't determine right from wrong, then you lack empathy, not religion. Um, <clears throat> and that there's that, that's a clumsy, in my opinion, a clumsy way of saying it. I would say if you can't determine right from wrong, uh, you lack moral discernment. I don't know about empathy exactly because empathy is one tool in determining right from wrong. But there are other tools. And if empathy is our only moral tool, we will actually make bad moral judgments. And I think this happens in our culture today. Um, take for instance, I'll, I'll just be controversial, take the abortion issue. Um, People have empathy for women and women's rights. So they feel as though they should support abortion. But that empathy is here putting them off the rails because they're not thinking of the living human being who there's no debate on this. Babies from the moment of conception are A, alive and B, human. Living human being. There's no empathy for that person, that human being that's alive. And so we, we have empathy as a rule for our moral gauge. Um, That empathy can really mess things up actually if that's our only tool. So here's where religion comes in if religion is false It's a bad tool for discovering moral truth. Islam is an example I think right so in Islam, you know There's such things as honor killings honor killing a family member um, if if they turn from Allah from Allah and and they become uh, a Christian Uh, an atheist, something like that, then you you can actually kill them to restore your your family's honor. It's okay to spread your religion through the sword. That's a bad moral rule because Islam is a false religion. But let's just say hypothetically for the non-believer, think of it this way. If you had God himself who could come and speak clarity about moral truth into the diverse and confused human world where we know that morals are real, but we often struggle with understanding what's right at the right moment. That would be a wonderful blessing, wouldn't it, to have that discernment and direction from God? So the next question is, is Christianity true? If I can show it's true, then I can, I can have accurate and clear moral truth. So when we see these claims, um, you don't need religion to have morals. Ah, no, that's not that's not something we're claiming that you do have to have religion to have morals. Although, religion, if it's true, any religion that's true would be an, a a good tool to add to our empathy along with other things to understand morals better and engage more morally in society. So I think that's just just for the sake of clarity. Um, on the flip side, while well, I'm still waiting for my first questions to come in, uh, on the flip side, I'd also add that there's a moral argument for God that's really interesting. And it's not you need God in your life as a person to have morals. This is, this is something very, very different than that. I hope you hear me. <laughs> it's instead is this idea that If morals are real, if we're all around the world perceiving morals as as an objective reality, not just hardline moral rules that you apply always without consideration of circumstances, but rather morals as just an objective reality, then that implies that there's some sort of moral source. There's some sort of, there's a God, uh, I think is the best explanation, that God is the grounding for moral truth because he's a personal and holy being. And this in Christian theology, God is holy. That becomes the grounding of moral truth. So that when we all look around and we go, hey, that's right, that's wrong, we're not making it up. We're actually looking into the world and we're perceiving moral realities that are stemming from God's very nature. But if there was no God, it's hard to explain those moral realities without some things that sound pretty fanciful. All right, we'll go to the uh, first question coming from the live chat. This is from Mike Agrigus or Grigus, who says in Acts 2520, if Festus slash Agrippa can't be sure of the resurrection claim, How can we be sure now? Thanks for your ministry. Um, Hey, Mike. All right. So Acts 18, I'm sorry, Acts 25, 25, 20. We're going to go there, put it on the screen for you guys to look at. And let's think through this. Um, So I'm going to actually back up a little bit. Actually, I'll read a verse by itself, and then we'll back up and look at the context because I I just want to use this as an example, maybe, of how a verse out of context can look different than when you read it in context. So being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. So this is where we have the the Roman leader saying, hey, I, I don't know how to investigate these things. And you're interpreting this, Mike, as he doesn't know how to investigate the claims of Jesus's resurrection. That's interesting. He doesn't know how to investigate the claims of Jesus' resurrection. Let's back up a little bit and read it in more context. So um, I'll start in verse 13 here. It seems like a section. Uh, now, when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Now, these are two different leaders in, in the community, um, uh, political leaders. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, before Agrippa. There is a man left prisoner by Felix. Now, Paul, just so you guys know, Paul is an apostle. He's in prison. Uh, there's, he's been accused of things, but it's they can't quite prove the case against him. It's more that there's just a lot of loud, noisy people who are accusing him of things without evidence. And so he ends up in prison, more through pressure, and he ends up appealing to Caesar because he um, uh, he's going to go to a higher court where this can be decided further distance from the Jewish influence so that he can be shown to be innocent. Um, And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king saying, there's a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So they made accusations, but there hasn't really been proof. There hasn't really been a trial, right? Verse 17, so when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. So they had made noise to sound like Paul had broken laws that Romans would care about. But instead, verse 19, They had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss, how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there. And instead, you know, he wants to to go to Caesar and be tried there because he doesn't want just the religious court. Um, So what does it mean that he's like, hey, Festus here is like, hey, I, I don't know how to investigate these things. Is he saying that he had no access to uh, the ability to investigate the resurrection claims of Jesus? Or is he at a loss as to how to how to arbitrate? Here's what I think it is. How to arbitrate a dispute on religious matters between Jews when he doesn't care about that because Roman law doesn't care about these religious issues between Jews. I think that's the real issue here. He's not claiming I can't investigate the resurrection. Whether he whether he thought Jesus resurrected or not, he in his court with his laws, he's at a loss as to how to proceed with accusations that aren't a violation of Roman law. That's what he's at a loss as to how to investigate. That's the thing. Now, if he was to try to investigate the resurrection of Jesus, he would have the ability to do so. He could talk about, talk, bring in eyewitnesses, have them subject to cross-examination. So there would actually be quite a lot of, um, oh, I forgot the question counter. Sorry, Sarah. It's too late. <laughs> um, it's, it's unplugged on the ground. <laughs> oh, sorry about that. Um, so do you get what I'm saying here is that this is actually not him saying, I can't investigate the resurrection. It's him saying as a court, I don't know how to investigate or proceed with questions about Jewish religious issues that like, it's just, there's no real way to proceed. So. I think that that is the application. Um, So Festus did have the ability to investigate the resurrection claims. He had a witness there, Paul himself. He could examine him. He could see his claims. He could could have asserted, uh, hey, let's bring in other witnesses and have them talk about their claims. Let's look at the suffering that these apostles endure after they make this claim about the resurrection. We could talk to eyewitnesses who say that they were fleeing in fear. So they went from terror and fear. They were not willing to die with Jesus to being willing to die for the claim that he rose from the dead. That's a pretty actually important piece of evidence. We could also talk to Joseph of Arimathea at the time. He'd be able to say, hey, Joseph, did you really bury him in your tomb? Hey, women, did you really find Jesus's tomb empty? Hey, um, you know, Paul, you were you hated Christianity. You persecuted Christians. You wanted them to die, right? That was long after they, they were telling you Jesus rose. You didn't believe. You thought it was a horrible lie. But then you became Christian. What happened that made you become Christian? Now, you could claim one of these as someone being delusional, but when you add all of them together and then you talk about group appearances and individual appearances, this is strong evidence unless you just want to disregard um, all uh, all sort of eyewitness evidence because it's about a claim that you think is unbelievable, but you don't do that with anything else in life. So it seems like that would become special pleading. So we'll go to question number three now. I'm going to hold up my hand there for, for Sarah so you can kind of find the, hopefully find... the uh, the questions. Question number three is Rusty Bibles has a question. Do you have any suggestions to help a believer of reincarnation? For example, um, Ryan Hammonds has 55 verified statements about having a past life. Also, Bible prophecies mean nothing since the Simpsons have predicted the future many times. All right, two radically different claims. Um, First off, If if in fact these are even opposed to each other, because if we're going to go, hey Ryan Hammonds having I don't know who that is, obviously some famous guy with a story about reincarnation. Um, but you know if we take his evidence and we say fifty five verifiable claims about past lives, that if that matters, then certainly fulfilled prophecy matters because Ryan Hammonds is just giving you evidence from the past. This is historical evidence that's known at the time when he's giving it, but then you've got you know, the Bible giving you a prophetic statements about the future, which is far more impressive. Me telling you something obscure that happened in the past and then someone confirming that that's true, not as impressive as me predicting the future in detail and then letting it happen outside of my visible control. So that, that I'm just saying these, do you see how sometimes, and sometimes this happens where uh, objections are laid out that are not even consistent with themselves to Christianity? This sometimes happens and I hope people are just aware of that. Now, what about Ryan Hammonds? I haven't heard of him. I can't look in, but here's the things I would look at if I was examining his reincarnation claims. I would look at, do we, do we know these claims were really made before they, before they were verified? So what's the evidence? What is the evidence they were made before they were verified? If the story only comes out after it's verified, then it's a little bit difficult to prove that it was made ahead of time. This is where the Bible, (laughs) it's kind of brilliant that the Bible has an Old and a New Testament. The Old Testament, 400 years of at least, at least, uh, r- autographic silence. There's no writings that, that are happened you know, between then and there, between there and the New Testament. Uh, even in Josephus, it, he writes about how like they just kind of thought prophecy had ceased after, you know, the last book of, of the Old Testament. And so we have hundreds and hundreds of years bef- between prophecies about Jesus and their fulfillment that's just about Jesus. We have other prophecies that were fulfilled in scripture too. Not all of them are easy to prove. I wouldn't try to put everyone forward as proof because some happened and they're just not as accessible to us, historically speaking. But yeah, I want to look at that. Uh, A reincarnation claim, I want to see, was it really, um, was the claim made before it was proven, was the information accessible to the person making the claim when they made it? You know, we, we were obviously obviously able to verify a claim because we had a, a reincarnated, a, a person who says I was reincarnated and I can tell you this from the past. And then we were able to go in and find that tr- that was true. Were they able to find that was true as well? Like that's a really important claim to, to examine and would be a possible explanation. Another explanation as a Christian would be this. Now, if you're not a Christian, maybe this isn't, uh, you know, something that convinces you that's Okay. Just realize that in a Christian worldview, this would show why reincarnation claims don't actually conflict with my worldview. Because we believe that there are spiritual beings, right? There is there is a spiritual world, a realm, you know, and we have angels, we have fallen angels and demons, that, that sort of stuff. So we think that that information could have come from those sources that would have been there at the time. And so somebody feeling that they're being reincarnated and they're remembering these things from a past life could be getting that information from a deceitful spirit. I think that is entirely possible. And um, I've seen it with my own eyes where some of the people who go into these, I'm reincarnated and they go real deep into it, how they get spiritually dark and spiritually weird and scary. And so that would seem to be a soft confirmation that there's something evil, demonic going on in that situation. Now, as far as the Simpsons, Predicting the future many times, I've heard that was a hoax. So you might want to check into that. Um, yeah, I've heard that was a hoax. I haven't really verified it, but um, but yeah, we'll go to question number four. Um, JJ says, "Was I ever really saved and had a relationship with Christ if I let heterosexuality left heterosexuality and embraced my same sex attraction and married my wife?" Um. So JJ. Um, I'm a little on the fence on this topic but let me let me give you like a couple things in response to this uh, one is <clears throat> theologically because there's a theological question then there's a very deeply personal question okay let me answer the theological question first theologically I am on the fence as to whether or not someone can lose their salvation I um, I'm on the fence on the topic, and I know that that drives some people really crazy, and I am and I don't like it. I'm not on the fence because it makes me please everybody, because guess what? I'm making people upset on both sides. When I say this, I personally, as a limited human being, <laughs> just don't know the right answer to that question yet. As I get into a Hebrews verse-by-verse study coming up after my Women in Ministry series I'm doing right now, when I get into Hebrews, I'm going to pause, and I'm going to do a little research project on this topic, and I'm going to try to come out with the best answer I can. So I may have more details theologically later on. But, but I don't know how to apply that well to your situation. Even if I had a theological answer, it's difficult to apply that to you individually, personally, because here's what I see happening on the internet all the time. Let's say for those who think that someone, if they, if they leave Christianity, that they have, um, uh, they've, that they were never Christian. That's their belief. If you left, you were never a Christian. You know, First John, you know, they went out from, from us because they were not among us. They weren't really one of us. It, and and then that's, that's the verse they'll use. That's the thing they'll say about you. What they're doing is they're answering theologically over here. Hey, theologically, I believe that this is the situation. But you don't hear the theology. You hear a personal attack against your sincerity. Right? Like, So I wasn't really genuine and you're thinking back and you're like man. I feel like I was really genuine I just feel like you're being a jerk to me and you're just saying thing mean things about me because you don't Because I'm like intimidating your religious beliefs or something And I think a lot of times it's not intimidating. It's it's people are trying to answer a theological question But they don't realize it's hitting somebody personally right in the face And so I think it's just really unhelpful to do this (laughs) I'm gonna tell you you were never really a Christian. You were never really well They don't hear they were never a Christian. They hear they were never sincere That they were never genuine that their heart was never really um in something and i i don't want to say that um i don't want to say that to somebody and i don't i don't feel that it's actually helpful to say it either and i don't know them so when you ask this question i left heterosexuality embraced my same-sex attraction and married my wife um you said was i ever really saved this implies to me that you are not currently a christian and then the topic today is non-christian so i'm going to assume behind the background of this question is that you're not currently a Christian? You're asking if you were ever, if you ever really had a relationship with God. Um, <clears throat> let me put this to you. I'll flip the tables on you a little bit and say this. How do you answer this question? Were you ever really saved? If if you were really saved, but you you chose a lifestyle to embrace, a lifestyle that that felt very important to you and valuable and part of your very identity, but it was a skewed lifestyle. It was it was a it was a lot involving a lot of goods but in a tainted fashion so that it, it's not honoring to God. But <clears throat> you you came into that and you said, hey, I'm going to commit to this. If you believe that you lost your salvation, then that means that you think God is real and you had a relationship with him and that Christianity is true, in which case I'm inviting you back. Like if, if you're thinking I was genuine and there was something real there, I had real experiences with Jesus, because that means please come back. If nothing else, I'm just saying please come back. Can I just sideline a little bit of these issues and beg you to return to Christ and... Follow him no matter the cost. And there is a cost. You read about it in the scripture. Jesus is like, hey, take up your cross. and Follow me. So I'm sorry I'm not fully answering all your question there um, because I don't know the whole answer. So let's go to the next question. And that is going to come from Chris Topher. (laughs) Question number five. Does Ezekiel 1820 contradict the stoning of Achan and his family in Joshua 7? 24 through 26, the idea of original sin passed down through Adam and Second Samuel 12, 13 through 15. Okay, this is a little bit convoluted. It's like as soon as we get to three passages of scripture, things can get a little bit like just hard for people who weren't already thinking about your question, Chris, um, to follow along. So let's look first at Ezekiel. Ezekiel 1820 gives us a principle in scripture. This is a general like principle about how... Um, How sin is handled right the soul who sins shall die the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father Nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself So the idea here is you don't punish the people who didn't who didn't do it right this this actually strangely enough i'm just being controversial because Whenever I see controversy, I sometimes think we should talk about those issues to bring clarity um, this actually might weigh into the way people are dealing with race issues um, in some ways, is that some people are guilty for things they never did. Um, uh, now there's others that racism's still an active problem. I, that, that's not the whole story. Racism's a big issue in our country and in our world today. It's a huge issue. It's bigger than it was probably a couple of years ago even. Um, <clears throat> but that's the principle. Okay, so how does that apply to uh, Joshua 7? Verses 24 through 26. Let's read through it. And Joshua and all Israel uh, with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that they had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? We're going to talk about the trouble he brought. The Lord brings trouble on you this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. So they stone with, They killed them with stones, and then they burned their bodies to like get rid of the impurity of their presence. So um, uh, the question is, like, his sons and daughters, his oxen, donkeys, and sheep. Like, why are they also included? If you're not supposed to, you know, take out the the the, um, the, the child or the son for the sins of the father. And I think that what we have with Aiken is we can. I'm going to make one guess. At least it seems like it's quite possible. Quite, in fact, it's probably probable. It's not just a guess. It's probable. But I'll also make one plain observation that's very important, and that is that um, this is when they take out AI. They destroy AI, and uh, Aiken and his family take some of the some of the stuff um, from AI that God wanted to to see destroyed. And it's kind of a lot to get into all the details. So. I'll just say this, in Joshua 7, um, they take out this this, this foreign land that's, that's polluted, polluted with idolatry, with wickedness, probably some of the gold items might have even been idols that they had taken, and Achan, his family is the only one in the whole group of Israel who violated the command of God and stole some stuff, and then kept it buried in their tent. Here's the observation that you can't argue with. It's buried in his tent, his family knows. They helped hide it. They're actually part of the sin. That's the observation. Um, Sons, daughters, it was a family commitment. They just conspired to keep the secret from everybody else in the tribe to violate God and bring sin into the camp of, of the people God was calling to be holy. And this is going to be the repeated issue of Israel. They keep falling and failing. And it shows us how much we need Jesus, ultimately, that we all just keep sinning. But that means that it's not the Ezekiel situation right? The, the, the Ezekiel situation, the son's not going to suffer for the sins of the father. This is a situation where everybody seems to be involved. That seems to be a plain and inarguable thing. And you could say, unless he had infants, right? His sons and daughters, what if, and, and if you see her sons and daughters and you imagine infants, I'm going to say, um, probabilistically, <laughs> um, you know, there's a good chance if you grabbed 10 households where there's sons and daughters, the majority of them, they wouldn't be infants. Right, because you you stay in the house beyond that infant age, and as they're traveling as a family, his sons and daughters could have been his sons and their wives at this point, right? This is a family traveling at in a camp, sharing tent space. They're 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 um what's the term um where you go from camp to camp to camp. You're traveling. <laughs> I can't think of the word. You guys know. Um So anyway. That's what I'm saying. Uh, They were active in the sin, and so they were actively receiving the punishment. I think that that's how I would read that passage. You also mentioned 2 Samuel, the idea of original sin passed down through Adam in 2 Samuel 12, verses 13 through 15. Oh yeah, this is a different. Okay, here's a different scenario. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed, you've utterly scorned the Lord. The child who's born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. So um, I don't know why I read the house verse, I guess, because you said 15. But, but Nathan went to his house. That's the important thing. Um, this is where David and Bathsheba commit adultery and she becomes pregnant. David tries to hide it up by murdering, his, his, uh, murdering Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And then Nathan exposes him. And then he says, "Look, you're not going to die, but the child's going to die." Now, is this a, is this a situation where the child is punished for the sins of the father? I think this is this is where let me, and I hope people can hear me on this because they're going to hear this like, here's another Christian apologist trying to pretend things are complicated. Well, usually you guys accuse me of pretending things are too simple, so <laughs> so <laughs> take your pick. Um, but uh, but I do think things are complicated here. I think the basic rule is you don't punish children for the sins of the parents. However. In this case, the child is not being punished, as in the child's not receiving some sort of punishment, like, I want to hurt you. Rather, the child, because of the impact it will have on the nation, because of the impact it will have on David and the whole nation of Israel, they will see this child born from murder and adultery, that then it becomes in line, uh, potentially, to become king of Israel. There needs to be a demonstration of God's justice, of God's righteousness for the people of Israel. And so that the the child dies as I, and I'll use the term, and I think it's appropriate as a collateral damage, right? Collateral damage because of, yes, because of the sins of the father. But um, that, and I totally get how someone goes, well, that feels like it conflicts with Ezekiel 18. And the two, the three rescues that you could have for this are one, um, and you could all, your fourth could always be, I don't know. I just don't know. That's a tough question. I don't know how to answer that. We're allowed to do that. Uh, but one of them is simply saying, hey, um, the, the child didn't die for the sins of the father. Like we're punishing the child deliberately and directly, but rather because of the sins of the father, the child ends up dying, which is a little bit different and significant. And you could try to draw a distinction there. You could also say that the rule that God gives in Ezekiel, and I've heard one apologist do this. The rule God gives in Ezekiel 18 is his rule for human government. You cannot punish the kids for the sins of the parents, the son for the father. You can't do that. And that that's a rule for them, but that God, who is the sovereign judge of all, that he has a higher court, so to speak, and he doesn't have that rule. I hesitate on that one. I just put it out there so you guys can think about it. And um, uh, the um, the other rescue is to simply say, the child's not being punished in any way. Not for the sins, not because of the sins of the father. It's just like maybe God's going to allow the child to die. It never says in uh, Second Samuel that God's going to kill the child. The child who's born to you shall die. It doesn't say that God actually is killing them. And infant mortality is pretty high in the ancient world. So maybe it has to do with God not protecting. I I, I hesitate on that. I, I, I lean towards the first solution of this being... Um, A a situation where the child dies For other means Not because of Not to punish the the father But because And and here's the hint in the passage Because God has uh, God has been scorned By the leader And he's restoring uh, holiness He's restoring justice so to speak And so it has to do with the public scorn That's happening there And so I would consider it collateral Um, I don't think that answer is going to satisfy a lot of people Um, I think it's accurate I think it's true, but I can't control who who uh, agrees with it or not. So I, I do think that that's true. All right. Anthony Collier says, to be saved, question number six, all we need to do is believe. And there's a question mark there. Uh, to be saved, all we need to do is believe? Like how I believed that Santa was real when I was younger? Or is there more to this belief? Um, well, I think that any analogy to Santa is a poor analogy, Anthony, in my opinion, because Santa is a, a, we all agree and know this is a fictional character that people lie to their children about to get them excited. I don't personally care for that practice. <laughs> I think it's weird. Um, I've always thought it was weird. Um, from the time I was like, say six or something and figured out that Santa wasn't real. I was like, wait a minute, what? And I felt so stupid. Um, but uh, but yeah, the, the, the problem with that analogy is that the analogy is comparing belief in Christ to belief in Santa, not just belief in general, right? So you say to be saved, all we need to do is believe. I would say y- y- yes, you need to believe, but but believing in Santa wouldn't work because Santa's fake. So obviously, I'm thinking Christ is real. He rose from the dead. That he's 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 God who came and took our sin and shame, and he suffered and died, right, to bring justice. And there may be symbolism there with the last question about the uh, David's. Uh, Child dying, um, but the uh, the idea here is that belief replaces works. That's the big teaching in the New Testament, that you believing in Christ replaces you doing the labor to restore your get your dignity and goodness and holiness before God. Instead, you trust in the one who does it for you. So. Is belief, though, merely intellectual? Like, I believe that Jesus did come. I'm convinced he died and rose again. Therefore, I'm saved. And the answer is no. Um, This belief is a, a, let's just call it a robust belief. The idea is that I'm believing and there's a sense of commitment in my heart with that belief. I don't just think it's true. I'm committing myself to the truth of it. And I I think that we understand the difference of that naturally. And I, I would never use the Santa analogy. Uh, kids can't rely on Santa the way we can rely on Jesus. So the things you're believing about Santa as a child when you're being deceived about him is are, are not comparable to the things you believe about Christ. Because believing about Santa are just sort of facts and you're hoping he brings you presents in the morning kind of stuff, but the belief doesn't have any effect and it's in a fake, uh, you know, legend. Whereas the belief in Christ has an effect and it's based upon truth, so I, I just don't like that analogy. The more to this belief, though, <clears throat> is genuine commitment, and this is why we say that works or good, you know, good deeds—they follow. They don't bring salvation, but they follow salvation, because with salvation you have genuine trust in Christ. Then you have Jesus who re- who you know brings you to life spiritually, empowers you, and if you're really trusting in Him, you're really relying on, you're really turning to Him with your heart. With, your, with real trust and belief, full robust belief, and he, and he empowers you by his spirit, then good works are naturally going to flow out of that. So the works become evidence that that belief was real. Uh, James chapter two talks about that. So let's go to question number seven. This is Gumen 130. One of the proofs you've put forward that the Bible is <clears throat> from God is miracles and prophecy. If we see that Satan is able to do miracles like Pharaoh's magicians, then why is it, pr- why is it proof it's from God? Um, great question. So if Satan can do miracles like Pharaoh's magicians, and how, how are miracles in proof of God? Um, and I think part of the answer here is, is to realize um, you only believe Satan can do miracles if you believe the Bible in the first place. But, but if we're going to take that, that for granted, that understanding, that biblical view of miracles, then we're going to see a lot of limitations on the kinds of miracles that Satan can do. So let's take it from a human level. Um, humans can do amazing things, right? Like on, on you know, in a stressed moment a human can lift a car up off of a off of a child and you know just do amazing feats, but they're not without limits. It's when you see someone do something without limits that you would conclude that it's like not a human, it's like superman, you know that you you'd conclude it's something beyond being a human. This is just an inhuman act. And so Satan being a a, a supernatural being, from our perspective but a limited one would have limits to his miracles and in the very passage you're talking about pharaoh and the the stuff that went on between pharaoh's magicians and moses they were limited in their abilities to what they could do they tried to reproduce moses's things on but key, key to this on small scale not on big scale and they were able to do some but not all and never to the scale that he had and they could never fight the actual stuff he did, they couldn't undo anything he did. So what we have here is limitations on the power of Satan, and so big, gigantic miracles, we would look at that as lo- much larger evidence of God, and prophecy is in particular something that only God can do. At least in Scripture, it says only God can predict the future, and if our understanding of God is a biblical one, or is is like just a, I think a wise one, then what we when we see God, we think about God, his ability to control. And predict historical or future historical events you know the things that are going to happen that 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 ability would, would be beyond compare because no matter what other actors there are what other beings there are trying to control and manipulate events there would ultimately be a sovereign God who could ensure that what he said was going to happen would happen or just has the wisdom to know everything all those other lesser spiritual beings will do will lead to this event anyway and so prophecy to me stands up as this really strong one um, the resurrection of Christ brings together prophecy and miracles because we have the, t- the testimony of the Old Testament about how Jesus would die, when he would come, the kind of things he would do. We have him predicting his own death. We have him dying on the, which even some non-believing scholars think Jesus predicted his own death and they try to explain it away somehow. Um, we have then things like the empty tomb and the evidence of the apostles, the eyewitnesses, the description of the tomb compared to archeological evidence. There's like quite a lot of evidence, it's a big mountain of information there. We have all that together. So we have the the resurrection, this, this miracle of miracles, and we have prophecy connected to it. And this screams to me uh, that, that there's a God. So we obviously have to have some sort of scale of what we consider to be miraculous enough to give God credit and not just any sort of spiritual power. I think that would be wise. Um, there's my, my thoughts on that, Guman. Um, I hope that you find that thoughtful all right next question which is question number eight ben v says how can an infinite god relate to a finite creation compared to infinity our world's age is nothing be it ten thousand years or billions same with the size of the universe ben i think you're a, a little like uh, you have one word for infinity but you have there's actually multiple meanings of that word right so um for example God is infinite, meaning not finite. But when we say that, we don't mean he's big without bounds. We mean he's actually a better, another word is transcendent. He's beyond the idea of bounds, of physical limitations. And so we say he's infinite. Really, we're just saying he's physically, there are no bounds for God. He's transcendent beyond creation, time, space, all that. When we say God is infinite, um, and you relate that to how like old, God is, we don't mean he's infinitely old, infinitely moments old. I think that that's actually a logical impossibility from far as I can tell. Um, Rather, what we mean is that God is beyond time. He is simply always existed. He existed when there wasn't a moment of time. There was just God existing. He's that profound. This, you know, and some use the word infinite here. But when you, when you compare them to the universe, and you talk about the universe being infinitely old, and then think God is, you know, the universe is not infinitely old, right? It goes back to how many billions of years, we'll think. Um, and God is yet infinitely old. No, no, these are, we're using the word infinite in two different ways. So that creates confusion in the question. So let me read the question again, and then respond to it with that clarity. How can an infinite God relate to a finite creation? Compared to infinity, our world's age is nothing, be it 10,000 years or billions. Same with the size of the universe. So I talked about the size and the age. Those are unrelated to God. The fact that he's infinite would actually empower him more to be involved in every moment and every place and every time. Right? He's not infinitely far away. He's imminently close and fully aware of every moment and every time and every single thing. So what, what, what has happened is, You've turned God's infinity, Ben, in, in your mind. I think you've turned God's infinity into a limitation, limiting like as if it means He's far away and it's hard for Him to access us. I think that that's um, the opposite of what it means. God's transcendence, like it says in the Psalms, like you know, were I to go, was, were I to go up to heaven, there you are, Lord. Make my bed in the depths of Sheol, there you are. That this is God's. If you're going to use the word infinity, I think that it makes Him closer not further. So how can God relate to us better than anyone else could because of that? Let's go to question number nine. This is Pyromaniac129 who says, Atheist here. Welcome, Pyromaniac. I hope I give you something thoughtful. Uh, What stops a supernatural but not perfectly good being from being the author of the miracles in the Bible, especially when you already accept the existence of supernatural beings? Okay, so hypothesis, right? Like we, we say, hey, I accept that supernatural beings exist. What if one of them is kind of... Um, well, let me read it one more time. What stops a supernatural being, but not perfectly good being, from being the author of the, the miracles in the Bible? Okay, so this... It, you didn't say the author or the the inspiration of the scripture, but the one who brought the miracles in the Bible. But some of the miracles... I'm trying to understand how this hypothesis will work. Some of the miracles in the Bible are the prophecies in the Bible. And so it's difficult to affirm, say, Moses without affirming also the inspiration, you know, that Moses' miracles and the Exodus were from a supernatural being without also affirming that the inspiration in the text itself comes from that same being. So this would be a being that's kind of tricking us. He gave us the scripture, gave us the Old Testament, maybe even the new. He, yeah, I guess the new as well in your, in, your hypo, in your hypothetical question. Raised Jesus from the dead, but never intended to send the messaging that we've received, or intended to send it, but meant to deceive us. And I think if you add up the miracles we see throughout scripture, we have a couple thoughts here. One, we have consistent miracles that are bringing us to the message of Jesus, if you take the Bible as being, these these miracles happen. So this supernatural being selectively did just the miracles that would lead us to Jesus and his resurrection and the gospel and the church and faith in Christ. but he But he doesn't actually save us through Jesus. It was a trick or it was some kind of a real blunder, like a real accident. But these miracles in the Bible, if you're going to grant them, we don't see them extra biblical elsewhere. We don't see those same kinds of miracles happening elsewhere. So what what you what you seem to be forced into is having a being other than God, other than the God of the Bible, who is a God who wrote the Bible just to mess with you. Now, if that's a, a belief you've got, which maybe you don't have it, that's fine. I'm just saying if that's the belief, then I'm just going to hold that up and compare it. What makes more sense to you? What seems more likely That the miracles are true and the text and what it says about them are not misleading you. Versus the miracles are true all the way through Old and New Testament and the being that wrote it did it just to totally, he's just, he's just trolling you. Now I've heard, I've heard a skeptic say this before, but I think they're not thinking critically about their own view. This is obviously irrational. To think that God did, like a God, a miracle, be a mirac- miraculous making being, you know, miracle making being did all this stuff, but it's just, it's just a troll. I'm just a troll in you, ha, <laughs> this to me would be like, um, ob- so obviously wrong. I don't know what else to say about it. So yeah, um, that would be the case. Now you could say, well, it could be Loki. I've literally heard a, a, a pagan say this um real pagan right he says well maybe it was loki i think maybe the god of the bible is loki it really is just a big troll it's just a big troll but here's this is what you maybe the what i'll do is i'll throw the the term ad hoc out there so with logical fallacies they're often used when they shouldn't be and i try to avoid that but ad hoc is a non-evidenced assumption that is if you take the bible miracles as true then it seems to indicate the bible itself is very true and therefore jesus is the way But with no evidence, you just say, ah, it's a Loki troll. (laughs) You know, that's the kind of thing. That's a non-evidenced assumption. There's no evidence to support it. There's no proof to be brought in, at least not that I've heard. And you'd have to have a pretty large amount of proof to suggest that you should uh, think something as strange as that. Even if you believe those beings exist, to think that that's the case in scripture would be such a stretch. All right, number 10, this is Dustin LeSueur who says, an atheist posited this question. If God created time, doesn't that require time to create time? Um, I've heard this question in other forms as well. So there was one skeptic who pushed back on an argument for God's existence from the creation of the universe. And they said, well, you know, you know, God can't create the universe because he didn't have anything to create the universe out of. And it was it was the weirdest objection. I'm not saying that atheists generally hold that view. I'm just saying I heard this strange objection: um, the idea of God creating time, that that needs time for Him to make time. Right? We're, we're we're talking created time. He made it. You don't need it to make it. That first moment, where uh, in, in my view, my opinion here, the first moment where the universe, stuff exists is the first moment so in the first moment it just was it just simply was And it's interesting that when god creates things in genesis that's the the kind of terminology we have you know let there be light and light was it just was so the idea is that god created not just out of time he makes time or that it takes a moment to make time it's just that there's a first moment and to me this magnifies the incredible power of the one that made time Right, however you define time. I mean, but it's obviously time and space are connected. So the two are, boom, they exist. That's the first moment. They're existing now. And that's, I think, how it, in my understanding, how it happened. So I'd push back on this and say, if, if you have to have time to make time, you're just making, you're just putting a burden on the issue that doesn't, doesn't belong. And it doesn't fit what people are actually claiming. You're just going to, you have, I declare, you have to have time to make time. And that doesn't work. So you must be wrong. But we're not saying that. So next question. (laughs) Um, Question number 11. I'll just put my finger up on a one again. 11. Just think 10 is in the background somewhere. Porfirio says, Atheist claims belief in God is what happens when social brains try to explain an impersonal universe. Personal explanations for impersonal events fail to deal with the logic of uncertainty. Help. Okay. Okay. Um, the claim is belief in God is what happens when social brains, what exactly is a social brain? Is there a non-social brain? (laughs) Um, I think the implication here is that we have bias and that our bias causes us to think there's agency behind things where there's no agency. I think that could be the nice, nicest way to put that. That are my bias, um, because I, I, I tend to think maybe because I'm an agent, called a social brain, but I'm like a personal agent. I tend to see personal agency where there isn't it because I am a personal agent. Um, so the statement is belief in God happens when social brains try to explain an impersonal universe. Well, but how did you know it was an impersonal universe? Although Christians aren't claiming the universe is personal. We're not claiming that. God is personal, but God's not the universe. So we're not actually claiming that. But But is that really what's happening? Or is that just like a personal attack? So a personal attack here is just, oh, you're just biased. Like I'm getting this recently in my women in ministry study. I've been seeing people saying that I'm biased, and as far as I can follow, because I'm looking for examples of bias, like you made this claim, but this is wrong, and I showed your bias. But instead, the, the claim is you're disagreeing with egalitarians too much, therefore you're biased. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, somebody's biased, um, but but I don't think it's me in that case. And, and here it's just kind of a claim that you, hey, I'm gonna psychologize you. You only think there's a God. Because your brain is wired that way. Okay. Um, can we test that claim? Can we find out are, are humans generally good? Generally, are we good at detecting whether things are caused by personal agents or not? Like for instance, I have a cup of water on the table here. I look at it and I can conclude very easily that a personal agent placed that water there. It didn't just happen on its own. You know, when I, when I go outside and I hear the wind rustling in my neighbor's uh, big plants, he's got these plants with these big leaves, and the wind rustles in them, I quickly conclude that that's non-personal, that this is just wind and leaves engaging with each other. But then when I hear another sound, I know that a cat is climbing up uh, the wall, because they like walking around my wall all the time, right? And so I tend to be pretty good at detecting personal agency behind things versus not. And I think humans generally are very good at this. This is why we don't just all day long go, what was that? What was that? How did that happen? Who did that? Who d-? We don't do that all day long because we're generally very good at this sort of thing. I think the thing is that the, the atheist here is responding to the reality that we look at the universe and we go, "Hmm, the, there seems to be design here. And we even have strong biological and, and, and you know physics arguments for there being agency behind the creation of this reality that we live in we have really strong arguments for this based on design there's a fine-tuning argument in um, in physics and there's a fine-tuning argument related to biology and they're both very powerful in fact even many atheists say that the fine-tuning argument is the most powerful because it appeals to our generally good sense of finding personal agency behind things and says don't you see personal agency behind this too to respond to that by saying oh that's just your social brain I think is incorrect. Now Richard Dawkins does this a little bit. He uses a stick analogy. And I've heard atheists, other atheists echo this. Hey, there's a, you, you're walking along the beach, you see a stick on the ground. It looks like a snake. And you think, oh, it's a snake. This helps protect you evolutionarily. It just helps protect you that you see a stick and you think it's a snake because then you're more cautious. So we look at the universe and we think there's a God. We get it wrong. But here's the thing. Usually we can tell when it's a stick or a snake. So if this analogy is going to be used, then it needs to be used that There's a good chance we're right about God because we're usually right about sticks and snakes. You might stop for a moment and go, stick, is that a stick? Yeah, no, it's just a stick. Is that, uh, it's a snake. But you could just tell a story about imaginary, the imaginary psychology of ancient ancestors and then try to disregard God. But I'm saying, here's me right now today. I'm pretty good at detecting agency. So are you. I look at the universe. It seems completely obvious to me that God exists and it does to him. A majority of the population of the world. There's a reason for that because it seems to be very obvious. So, um, when he says personal, his second claim here from the atheist is personal explanations for impersonal events fail to deal with the logic of uncertainty. Um, again, he's imported, if, if this is a quote from him, he's imported his conclusion into his argument personal explanations for impersonal events he's assuming the creation of the whole universe and all the biological design that those are impersonal events that's his that's circular reasoning my my conclusion is in my in my argument and he says we're failing to deal with the logic of uncertainty uh no a lot of people could just say seems very likely that god exists i'm not certain but i'm going to hold to it because it seems quite likely so i don't see there's a problem there personally we'll go to question number 12 this is from chael d wesson who says "Um, my professor brought up his question this question and i need to know your opinion according to hebrew scripture anything not of god's perfect eschatological view is sin for example human excretion so poo so how can we say jesus is sinless okay I think I, I see what's happening with your professor is they're identifying, um, um, they're identifying uncleanness in the Old Testament as sin. And so anything that made Jesus unclean ceremonially would have made him sinful. So one of the things that makes people unclean ceremonially is bodily discharges of any kind. So like uh, even bleeding. So when Jesus was on the cross, when he was beaten, he was unclean. He was ceremonial unclean in those moments. Now you're going to say he was actually sinning. The problem here is that your professor has, um, I think your professor has dumbed down and oversimplified the Old Testament and the way that the, the, the Hebrews would look at these issues. They would see themselves as unclean, but not necessarily guilty of any sin. Guilt. There was guilt. It would have come in if you tried to enter the presence of God or, in, or or do things you weren't supposed to do when you were unclean. But there you're violating a command. It's not that you've sinned before that point. It's that you violated a command not to do that because God has certain rules. Now, some of the cleanliness rules in the Old Testament seem like they're about actual godliness and holiness. Some of them seem like they're just about ceremonial issues. And as a Christian in particular, you can, you can, well, I, even as a Jew, you can kind of push on this because Abraham wasn't observing all of these Old Testament ceremonial laws. He gave these to the people of Israel. When, when God judges other nations, he never judges them for the ceremonial stuff that he told Israel to do, implying those things aren't just sinful. They're a cleanliness thing about the setting apart of a nation, the symbolism of Christ, the, um, yeah, other things like that. So there's, what I'm saying is there's more complexity in the in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament understanding of clean, clean and unclean, and to just equate any uncleanness with sin is just wrong. It's just wrong, right? A, a woman has her, her period. She has her customary impurity, she's, but she's not sinning. She hasn't done anything wrong. There's nothing immoral. She's not ashamed, right? This is, however, about sanitation and about symbolism and a lot of other important things. So I, th- I think that um, your professor is missing those things. I'm curious what, I wish I knew what class that professor taught. Because it's often things like this a professor says and they're teaching like music class or something. <laughs> um, and you're like, what are you talking about that for? Um, other times you may have an actual Old Testament professor who's just treating the Old Testament like a buffoon and I hope that's not happening. All right, let's go to question number uh, 13. I'm going to do that because I'll confuse people. James Raphael says, as a Mormon, since you'd consider us non-Christian, should we be allowed to celebrate Christmas or Easter? Um, I would consider, um, let me me add a layer of complexity to this, James. I would consider Mormonism, not Mormons, Mormonism non-Christian. Mormons have, as you know, have a wide variety of views. You probably know Mormons who believe things that Mormonism doesn't even teach. And if you know your theology really well, you probably know a lot of Mormons who don't even believe stuff Mormonism teaches. I met a Mormon in Utah in, I think it was Provo. Um, We were on a mission trip out there. And I met one, and as we talked through the issues of the gospel and salvation, and we talked about the temple and the afterlife, and we talked about um, exaltation and about all, the Book of Mormon. He was Christian. Like, not Mormon Christian. And um, yet he, he he swore up and down, I'm a Mormon, I'm Mormon, I'm Mormon. But he was in a town, I don't think it was Provo, it was like a 95% LDS town, as there are some up there. And so I think he was Mormon culturally, but that his views were actually Christian. So yeah, let me then answer your question. Um, should Mormons, assuming that they hold to real Mormonism, right, that they um, hold to, like, say, what Brigham Young taught with the Doctrine and Covenants, say, those types of things... When they hold to those things, should they be allowed to celebrate Christmas or Easter? Um, Yeah. I mean, atheists are allowed to celebrate Christmas or Easter. I have family that aren't saved that celebrate Christmas every year. They don't celebrate it in a way that honors Christ, truly. But why, like, am I supposed to go around and tell people they can't celebrate a holiday? Stop it. You're, You're not genuine. So I don't believe in that kind of thing. Some Christians think they want a theocracy where you could like enforce those kinds of rules. I think that that would be a horrible idea. And here's why it wouldn't be a real theocracy where God is ruling. It would be a, a faux theocracy. Any attempted theocracy on earth right now, until Jesus returns, in my opinion, is a faux theocracy one where humans come up and they pretend to rule with the authority of God that they don't really have. So all you have is uh, man, right? Pretending, to have the power and authority of God and declare things like that. So I would never, I, I think religious freedom is an important thing and a good thing. And, uh, I wouldn't stop someone from celebrating something like that. Um, yeah, I would just hope James that next time you celebrate Christmas, you, you do so with a greater understanding of the person of Christ and the meaning of the doctrine of the Trinity, for instance. So I hope you'll maybe watch some of my, my videos on Mormonism. All right. Number 14. Cool. Bob, says why should a person be christian over another monotheistic um religion which claims to be the truth such as islam um so i like this question for a couple reasons for one thing the idea of a mono that that monotheism is the starting point is a good is a good thing i think right because all the arguments people miss this all the arguments for god they don't work for every religion Like, they don't even work for Mormonism. For instance, Mormonism teaches that um, uh, the universe is eternal, that that matter, time, space, matter, energy, that those have always existed eternally, and that God was not always God. Our God once lived uh, near a place called Kolob, which is debatable whether Kolob was a star or was a planet. Um, Doesn't really matter. The point is that he lived over there in some other solar system in like a humanoid form, and he was just good enough. And he worshipped his god to get exalted to become god and then he made a bunch of babies in heaven we were all spiritual babies in heaven and then we came to earth for a chance to become gods ourselves now that, i mean that is what real mormonism teaches and some mormons the way they back off of that nowadays joseph smith would have been pretty upset with you um but maybe you don't like him that much anymore i don't know <laughs> Mormonism's changing <laughs> so um so yeah but my point in saying all that is to say mormonism it doesn't work all the arguments for god are like this eternal all-powerful being that's always been god that is the creator of all things like this is how the arguments for god work when i look at fine-tuning that's because god's creator of the universe not just that he organized it a little better that's not the case so that doesn't work for mormonism it could work for islam sort of many of the arguments for god could work for islam in fact the kalam cosmological argument was promoted by islamic thinkers in the past because it does point to this monotheistic God. But Islam has a few problems. And here's some reasons why I would take Christianity it, it, just on the description of God over Islam. Um, for one thing, the the prophecies and the statements in Islam, in the Quran, the, the very few that are there, don't come to pass. The, um, the, the Quran has in irreconcilable contradictions that are not just like people pulling verses out of context, but it, it claims that you know, it's from the Hebrew in the Old Testament, and it's it's Christian that Jesus Himself was a Christian, was a Muslim. Um, this is what Muslims will claim. The idea is that it comes from the Bible. Yet Islam denies the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and it also denies that Jesus is the Son of God. And so, what I'm saying here is not don't be Islam because Islam's not Christian. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is. There's an internal contradiction in claiming to come from historical Christianity but disagreeing with the foundational tenets of historical Christianity. So to rescue this, they go, well, the Bible's been changed. It never really originally said that except that we have strong evidence that it it did always say that. that even the Son of Man statements in Jesus that even liberal scholars will say go back to, um, to Jesus, even the most liberal ones. And so I think that we've got strong evidence against Islam there. We also have things like the, the doctrine of the Trinity, which I know some skeptics think is a weak point in Christianity. Um, but God is love. And in Islam, God was God is not love. He, he's not love, not doctrinally. That's not true. But also, metaphysically, as you think about the concept of God, you have God in three persons. So there's always love in the Trinity. There's, there's this tri-personal nature of God. So he's God is, you know, experiencing a loving, compassionate interaction and relationship within himself. Whereas in Islam, this is not the case. There's other issues with with Islam too, metaphysically, that it just breaks. So basically, you know, Islam borrows from Christianity. This is historically true. It butchers it. It takes out the central tenets of it. And it loses some of the elements of God, but it's still monotheistic. So some of the arguments will work for Islam. There's. I wish I had more time to think through that and give you a stronger answer, but there's some thoughts for you. I hope they help. Um, number 15, Gabriel C says, "Why does God allow children to get cancer and other terminal illnesses?" Um, Gabriel, this is challenging for a number of reasons, um, but I want to challenge you a little bit as well. So, I don't know why um, God allows children to get terminal cancer and other illnesses, and if if it was just if you just asked me, Mike. You want to snap your fingers and stop all that from happening I, I would probably do it in a heartbeat so so this puts us in a frustrating situation. God you're running the world in a way and in some ways that are infuriating to us in our and, and it hurts our hearts and even just hearing about it let alone being a family who's experiencing it I know Christians who've gone through these kinds of situations and it's beyond words the kind of the kind of suffering and the kind of pain and the kind of um, just tiredness. <laughs> Um, of 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 everything and all the stuff, it's beyond words. But here's the challenge: I'll push back a little bit, and I'll say, when we ask God, "Why are you doing this? Or why aren't you doing that?" We are potentially putting ourselves into a place of of lack of self awareness, where I don't recognize. That I'm just a human living in this world. I'm this tiny speck of a being, trying to challenge how God is running His universe. This is a humility that we desperately need. I mean, it will save us from falling into horrible des- deception because we—it's anyone can look around and add up the horrific things they see happening in the world and conclude that either God doesn't exist or I don't like Him. Anyone can do that, if they feel like they have the place. To make the proper judgment so let me give you um an example me and my wife like walk, watching cooking shows and we were watching iron chef which i think is a real fun cooking show and um we're watching this show and one of the complaints about iron chef was i don't i don't think it's still running or maybe it is i don't know we're watching reruns and uh, one of the complaints about the show was that the judges you have these incredible chefs cooking but frequently the judges it'll be like one or maybe two real food critics who know food and then it'll be like an actor or like a producer or like some random famous person and they'll look at the food and they'll and they'll judge it poorly now the chefs are incredibly skilled and they make it really well and then i've, I've seen people look at the food and they go oh well that's just it's just kind of weird to me you know it just kind of tastes strange to me like i haven't had that before and i i don't know what's this sauce called again you know and and they're ju- the thing is they're judging, and this is what struck a lot of people as odd with the show is that they have these famous people for ratings, who are judging expert chefs to see who is the best expert chef in this scenario. Um, I don't blame the famous person for saying yes to go on the show and have a lot of, have a good time, but the producers of the show should have known better. Like somebody should have been like, "Hey, you are you are not in a in a place where you're informed enough to make a proper judgment about this issue. And so what I'm going to suggest is human, you, when you, when you, evo- me too, when I evaluate and look at the world, I'm not in a place to make an informed and right judgment on God, on how he's running things. Not in my knowledge, I don't know enough. Not in my wisdom, I don't understand things well enough, even the things I do know. Right? And not in my perspective, because I'm looking at it from this moment and i can't tell you how many times in life i've grown out of a difficult season and i look back at it so differently when i was in the middle all i wanted was out of it but i look back and some of those seasons i wouldn't i would i'm glad i went through it even though it was horrific at the time it's hard for me to hear myself say that because i've been through some stuff right and you have too some of that stuff i look back and i go gosh if i could undo that i don't know that i would it brought so much character into my life and other things that happened other goods even though that was bad and so what i'm going to say is we lack perspective as a christian what you you have one tool that will help you in this you have well you have multiple tools one of them is god has a plan for the future not just the present and if you evaluate the present like the current condition like say kids getting cancer like that's the whole story then you just think this is ad infinitum, right? It's always going to go on this way forever. God, I I, I, uh, I can't stand that. I can't handle that. I, re- I reject that. I reject you. But if you realize that a new heaven and a new earth are coming, this is Christianity. If, if Christianity is true, a new heaven and a new earth are coming where righteousness dwells, well, you will see that child that had cancer living in fuller life than they ever even would have had on earth. You'll see them running and playing and having relationships and enjoying the best existence there could be in the new heaven, and new earth, and only those who want to be with God and want holiness will be there. It'll be perfect. It'll be wonderful. It'll be ho- It'll be holy and it will last forever. So when you compare that eternal glory to the current suffering, even of say a child with cancer, it changes your perspective. So I think I lack the wisdom. I lack the knowledge. I don't really know what's fully going on in the world. I only know the things I'm thinking about right now. I don't really have the wisdom to evaluate those things the way I probably need to. I tend to evaluate with my gut, especially when it comes to suffering. And I don't have the perspective that I will have later when I'm in his presence. And so those things, to me, change everything. I'll add to this. Christianity has an answer to children who get cancer and terminal illness. Outside of Christianity, what on earth is your answer? I have a hope. I have a hope for them. I believe that children, when they pass, they're going to be in the presence of the Lord, and they're going to live eternally. Enjoy. I have a video on that, by the way, where I think I show you where the Bible teaches that. I have an answer for that. Christians have an answer for these hor- horrific situations of life. Whereas outside of that, I don't know what your answer is. So number 16. This is um, an anonymous question. It says in Matthew 11, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says that Sodom would have been saved if they'd seen his miracles. Why then didn't God perform miracles so that they would believe? Doesn't he want everyone saved? um, let's go to the passage. So Jesus is kind of doing his woes, like woe on you, Bethsaida, woe on you, Capernaum. These are towns where Jesus had already gone through and he'd done a bunch of miracles. And then they had, they had rejected him. Uh, You know, probably individuals had received him, but in, in general, the town, this Jewish town who was supposed to expect their Messiah rejected their Messiah. And he says to them, and you Capernaum, Will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, you guys know the story of Sodom, it would have remained until today. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Um. This passage, just two seconds. Let me check something real quick. There's another parallel passage where he says something similar. Um, This is more of a prediction. He says, hey, you know, two by two go out. You know, the disciples go out two by two and says, I say to you, uh, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And then he he makes the claim as well. Um, Let's say this. Are we sure that Sodom would have been saved, like eternally saved, or that the town would have been saved? Um, I just don't want to go beyond the text too much. If there's, hold on, you guys haven't seen her in a long time, but there's Moxie sort of, you can sort of kind of get a picture of my kitty cat. <laughs> anyway, um, why'd you come up here? So the, uh, <laughs> sorry for the stretch. The, um, the question of whether they're actually saved or not is, is, a, is an interesting question. It, Sodom, the city, would have survived, but would they have been saved? Let's just say that they would have. Okay? For the sake of argument. I'm just going to say there's wiggle room there as far as, like, should we make the jump? Um, I'm, I'm inclined to think more likely than not that that would have been Sodom getting saved. So if Jesus had showed up in Sodom and he had done miracles, there would have been a response from the people there of repentance, perhaps, perhaps even salvation. Um, so if that's the case I mean doesn't God want everyone saved I mean some say well it's just hypothetical I've heard people respond to this question this way they say hey this this passage in Matthew 11 isn't literal like he doesn't really mean like it literally would be the case but I'm inclined to think that it is literal, that, that Jesus is saying that, that this, I just want to take the scripture and let it sit and let it be. And I think there's the most health when we do that, even though sometimes we're uncomfortable because we don't, we don't, we see where it might be heading and we don't want to go there. Um, but that's all the more reason to do it. So I think that um, my answer would be, does God want everyone saved? Yes. Does he want everyone saved at all costs? I don't, I don't know if, I don't know the answer to that question. He definitely wants everyone saved. God desires all men to repent, right? He loved the world. He gave his only son. Um, saw, uh, we know that uh, Lot was in Sodom preaching righteousness, according to scripture. He was actually preaching righteousness there and they did not repent. And so what we have with Sodom is a willful choice to go into sin, uh, time given, information given to repent, but not the miracles that Jesus did. Perhaps those miracles would have changed things. And there she goes. I think... um, My cat is distracting me me quite a bit, actually, if not you. (laughs) Um, I think that we could wind back the clock and put Jesus in Sodom and have him do the mighty works that were done there. Um, But then you wouldn't have Jesus... In the first century, you'd have Jesus in Sodom at a different time. Well, couldn't Jesus just do the same miracles everywhere in every generation? Well, then what would highlight the the resurrection? What I'm saying is that there's a balance. There's a cost for each decision that's made. There's a butterfly effect, if you will. And so Jesus came and he did these miracles. And this is why um, with scripture, there's measured judgment. This is why with Sodom, they rejected God. They did have opportunity. They did have knowledge. They did have preaching. They still rejected him. They'll be judged, but not as strictly, not as bad as those who reject Jesus and his miracles right in front of them. So is it, you know, what you're really asking, the hardest part you're asking, and I'm going to give you my personal answer here that I don't even know if the majority of Christians would agree with. My personal understanding could be wrong is, are there people on the earth who, if they had more evidence, would receive Christ? I think that that is a potential. But that they will not be judged for rejecting Christ with the evidence they didn't have; they'll only be judged for rejecting Him with the evidence they did have. I think it's at least possible. I don't like it. It seems possible. I think, though, that God is still just. Uh, let me give you an example. Um, you 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 tell your kid, um, do that one more time, and you're grounded. And then your kid does it one more time and they get grounded. You you were justified in grounding your kid. But if someone goes, but what if you had gone over and picked up your kid and you had taken him on a drive and in the drive you talked extensively about why that thing was a problem and why you didn't like what he did, is it possible then they wouldn't have been grounded? And the answer is like, well, yeah, it's definitely possible they wouldn't have been grounded. But there's also a sense of justness and goodness in that they were grounded, that there's a rightness to that. And I think I would lean on that with God's judgment. And we live in a real world where God really judges. And it's not just something, a story we tell people to make them feel good. It's something we warn people about. And yeah. All right, let's go to question number 17. And this is from Trin Cat, who says from a non-Christian friend, if God doesn't change over time, how come he commands Jews not to eat certain foods in the Old Testament, but deems it okay in the New Testament? Um, Trin Cat, I, I think that, um, this is, uh, this is the kind of thing I've heard before. so I don't think you're alone in this, but I think it's also a real misunderstanding of like these topics. So please allow me to to say, I think that your understanding of this issue of these questions, even the question you're asking is 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 lacking to a degree that's making it really hard to think about it. So here's here's some things to consider. When We say God doesn't change, we mean his character doesn't change. His promises are always true. He's permanently reliable. He is holy at all times. He is the same quality of God at all times. You know, like he doesn't change. We don't mean that he's like static because he's unable to do anything because doing anything implies some kind of change with some definition of that word. So when God tells people in the Old Testament, hey, you can't, do this, you can't do that, and then in the New Testament lifts those restrictions. What we should ask isn't if God changed. What we should ask is what changed. Why did His instructions change? <clears throat> and the answer here is the analogy we get in Galatians, where it tells us that the law was like a tutor or schoolmaster that was meant to lead us to Christ, like a teacher. And you don't need the teacher when you get older, but you need them when you're younger. So that as they're being taught and developing their understanding of of God and of the gospel and of the truth of who God is like monotheism things like that they they have the law that's there with all these rules and principles and those things point to Jesus the sacrifices and the hardship of having to sacrifice an animal because of your sin pointing to Jesus being the sacrifice for my sin the the feast days like the passover they select a perfect spotless lamb they um they they offer it and they have to consume it and we here we have Jesus who becomes our passover lamb and in communion we commemorate that like like his body and blood that this is that this took over passover so what we have here is training and then coming into the full adulthood of spiritual realities the old testament law is the training the new testament revelation in christ the new covenant is the full revelation but the old testament also prophecies prophesies these things it's not just new he talks about making a new covenant with them and about the fulfillment of all these things and that happens in jesus so god didn't change it's our situation that changed when our eyes were opened and we go look i still have passover but i see jesus as my passover i, st- I get yom kippur the day of atonement but i see jesus as my day of atonement i see him as the fulfillment i've um i stepped into it you know i, I I've, i'm i'm a I'm an adult spiritual adult now in Christ so I, I hope that that helps you out Let's go to question number 18 how do I do 18 with my hands um this is from an anonymous source it says is it fair for God to demand our everything when we're forced to exist I know Christ died for us, but it seems unfair to go through such suffering slash sacrifice to receive salvation and avoid hell um so Oh man, honestly, whoever you are, I'll, I'm just going to call you uh, Ted, <laughs> I don't know, but whoever you are, anonymous person, um, I wish we could sit down and have like, it's a casual chat over like a cup of coffee um, or or some like steak <laughs> and just sit and talk for a while because I want to like pull off some layers of understanding here. I'm going to respond and this might feel a little blunt, but it's because of the nature of a and a and me not being able to ask more questions. So I hope you'll think about these things. But is it fair for God to demand our everything when we're forced to exist? So the idea is, um, I didn't, I didn't give permission for my, for me to exist. Therefore, I, sh- not, I shouldn't have as much asked of me. Like I should be given more liberty from God to do what I want because He didn't ask me if I wanted this kind of existence. I think this feels strong to people, this kind of statement. But I also think it's irrational when I say it's irrational, I mean, conceptually, the idea behind it is that if God had asked me permission to exist, then he could demand more of me because I would have kind of agreed to it. I think it's irrational for a couple reasons. One, God asking you permission requires you existing. He'd have to make you to then ask you if it's okay that he made you, but it'd be too late. He already would have violated you. But if he doesn't make you, then you don't exist, and there's there is therefore no violation to you. But there is no you, so there's no violation, there's no blessing, there's nothing. What I'm saying is, it's, it's actually a logical impossibility to make you after asking your permission. <laughs> like it doesn't work that way. Like that is irrational. It's logically impossible. It's like God making a square circle. It doesn't it doesn't work. It's not about the power of God. It's about rational thinking. So, um, so it's not fair. For you to be upset with God for doing something that was logically the only way to do it, making you before asking you permission. But then he does give you free will. Like God demands your everything, but he doesn't force you. God asks. He made you for himself. He is God. Like When it comes to reality, he's the most important thing. He creates the universe, he then makes us. I think when we see the protagonist in our lives, we tend to think we're the protagonist. Or maybe our kids, when we have kids, we start thinking they're the protagonist, it's all about them. But the universe was made by God and for God. And so we're actually kind of like, there's a kind of like a self idolatry that's there when I start thinking that I'm the protagonist and not God. God is the one who's the purpose of all this stuff. Is it right that God would design the universe, create the universe, design biological life, create biological life, make man in his own image, give humankind the ability to have a relationship with him, give them a high moral awareness, require them to do good things, and when they fail, provide an offering, a sacrifice to, to make right the wrongs of the world, and then promise them eternal life if they will just embrace the goodness of God, which that's the things he demands of you, is embracing his holiness and goodness. That's not really... What you're describing here and god's like how could he demand that i do everything he wants it's just unfair right i go through such suffering and sacrifice to receive salvation and avoid hell but you're not i mean if you think the christian life is oh i'm going through such suffering and sacrifice and then the worldly ungodly life is like this pleasurable enjoyable life there's a sense in which there's pleasure for a season right like there's that but most christians don't view their life that way um most christians even the ones who suffer persecution they don't look at it grudgingly they look at it with a sense of joy because they're like i'm not just avoiding hell i'm i have a relationship with the living god the protagonist of of reality he's dwelling within me he brings me joy and peace and gives me eternal life in his presence with perfect fellowship and joy with others for all eternity do you understand what i'm saying here is your entire line of reasoning ted (laughs) um is all based on really distorted perspectives of reality that make you the victim and protagonist in the story of reality taking totally for granted the blessings god gives you the things he calls you to they're suffering in this world, but it's, like Paul says, it's not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. I take the suffering, man. I take the suffering that I get in Christ, which is not that much compared to the suffering Christ did for me. And he's the protagonist there. So, I I, I mean, I hope that helps. You just need a whole, like, complete rewiring of the way you're thinking about these things. Um, you're not the victim. You're the criminal being rescued by the Savior. And until you see it that way, it's never going to make sense. All right, number 19, this is from Theophilus Segoromo, who says, if a conscientious person who never heard the gospel can still be saved, but a but a skeptic of the gospel is damned, doesn't evangelism damn more people than it saves? Wouldn't humanism be our best bet? Um, so this is a pragmatic concern. The concern is um, more people will get saved because they'll be quote conscientious and have never heard the gospel but I, I'm gonna say that your your bar for who is saved of who has never heard the gospel is really low like it's like hey you're con- you're conscientious and you never heard the gospel it kind of sounds like you seem like a decent person and you've never heard the gospel you're saved which implies they're saved by their works. I and mean, that's how it feels to me, someone who's just conscientious about, towards other people. That bar is so low. That's why you you think that when you bring the gospel into a community where most people are conscientious and say 80% reject the gospel, now you've condemned most of them. But I think your bar is so low. Uh, what I see that I think is more accurate is that there are people who have never heard the gospel that are saved, but that they're less frequent. And when you bring the gospel into a community, more people are going to end up being saved, and so I would flip that argument on its on its side. Um, an example for this could be Jesus saying about the Samaritans when they when he when they all gathered, they came out of this town. The Samaritans they hadn't really heard the gospel yet; they they didn't even believe in the Jewish Messiah, right? They they they're, they they have their own version of a Messiah. The Samaritan was kind of like this weird Jewish cult. That um, it's a long story. All right, so I have a teaching on it in the Mark series where I talk about the Samaritans. Um, So this group comes out to see Jesus at the well, and Jesus looks at them and says, "Behold, the field is 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 ripe with harvest. We just need harvesters to go out." The implication is that when they went out to evangelize these people, more people got saved, not just condemned. So the gospel is not the tool of condemnation; it's the tool of salvation, and it brings whole groups of people to to be saved. Um, We are sometimes a little bit soured because we live in a kind of a post-Christian culture where. Um, a majority of the people in our communities are more and more rejecting the gospel, but this is this is the, um, the Saturation of bitterness that has happened to our culture the large numbers of rejection compared to the incredible growth of Christianity in other parts of the world All right last question. This is question 20 Corey Walton Says how do we respond to people who say quote you Christians are so pro-life yet? you don't want gay people to adopt Um, what's the path to answering that question? Love you, Ali and Moxie. All right. So what is, what are you doing over there? She's very adventurous today. (laughs) Shut up. All right. Um, uh, are Christians so pro-life yet we don't want gay people to adopt. Um, I think that what we should do is start with our values and then we'll, then we'll look at how that plays out in policy. Okay. So my values, I am pro-life. Right? Like I, I don't think you should kill humans without really, really good reason. That's that's the pro life position. I see the, the death penalty I think is 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 a really good reason. Assuming that it's you know the person's truly guilty, we're absolutely confident and all that kind of stuff. Um yet you shouldn't give the death penalty to a baby in the womb because mom doesn't want the baby. I think that if a if a dad doesn't want his baby, we call him a deadbeat father, and if a mom wants to kill her baby, she's being a deadbeat mom. Like this is, seems like a no brainer to me. It's not a no-brainer to our culture. Our culture has turned this into um, an idol. But it's not new. The, the, the ancient Israelites used to burn their babies they didn't want. They would burn them on altars to Molech, turn it into a religious offering. And um, that's, that's that's humans are just that bad. We, we do this. So we're pro-life. Okay, I'm pro-life. Christians should be pro-life because man was made in the image of God. Therefore, you can't just go around killing people, killing humans. Well, I don't think they're persons at that age. Okay, well, good guess. Go ahead and kill them because you think maybe they're not really persons yet. That's insane moral reasoning, but that's where people go. On the other side, we have the issue of gay people adopting. What's the issue there? Well, I think the issue there is, is, here's a value behind it. The value behind it is that um, proper families are a, a husband and wife who have their own children. This is a proper family. Now, you have a non-standard family like say adoption, you at least would like to put them into the best family situation you can. That's a good value. Um, but with with the idea of gay people adopting, to me the issue is this. I want kids to be in the best situation and I, and I'm I'm in a minority here. But I can see how if there's if there's a um a lack, if there's like say we have 10,000 kids that need to be adopted and we only have Um, 9,000 couples that will adopt. And so then we start looking for non-standard families. We go, hey, are there single people that are willing to adopt? Are there gay people that are willing to adopt? Is there anyone that's willing to adopt? Because that's probably better than foster care, most likely. And I I could be wrong here, but I'm just saying I'm open to the idea. But adoption should prioritize the best family situation for the child. What we sometimes do, and this is my pushback against the pro-gay agenda here, what we sometimes do is we... We promote like the life experience and the life journey of the parents trying to adopt instead of realizing that adopting is for children, not for parents. Like the, ch- the kids are the important thing. This is the same thing with abortion. The kids are more important here than people realize. Same thing with adoption. We should prioritize. And, and since, from my understanding, in the U.S. at least, there are miles of lines of good qualified families ready to adopt. Why on earth would I prioritize a family that doesn't have a mom? Or doesn't have a dad moms and dads are important they're not just you can't just exchange two dads for a dad and a mom not for the sake of that kid so in, an, in a non-optimal way when you have kids who are just going to be stuck in orphanages that might especially be un, unhealthy right or or uh, you know foster care if, if it's not a good environment which often it's not then i'm open to the idea because hey is it is it at least better than this but don't for a second pretend that uh, two two men are an equivalent of a man and a woman raising a child. Just think of those of you who had a mom and dad both around. They both mattered, didn't they? Right, And unless they were abusive or something like that, you're going to say, no, you need both of those. They're really important for you as a child. So I think we're just prioritizing uh, the life of the child and the responsibility adults have to take care of children when we say we want adoption to go towards a... Um, a one man, one woman who have a stable relationship and can provide the best up upbringing for that kid. Yeah. Moms and dads are not interchangeable. So I know, I mean, I grew up without uh, a significant dad in my life and my, my stepdad was there for on and off, very on and off, who's in the house, out of the house and for seven years from seven to 14 but there was no relationship there. So I basically felt like I didn't have a dad figure in my life. And my mom would be like, "Well, I'm going to try to be your mom and your dad." And I'd be like, "Well, guess what, mom? That's not possible." Would you purposely put a kid in a situation like that? No dad? No mom? No big deal, right? Because we're because gay rights and we want to support your journey. That that's just we're using kids as pawns for our um our our personal journey here when it should be that we serve them. There's my thoughts on that. Um, and yeah, they're, they're what they are. <laughs> you guys, thank you so much for, for coming and joining. This has been the non-Christian Q&A. If, if this gets a good response from you guys, I'll do it again. I, I love getting these kinds of questions and I hope that my answers have been helpful to you. Um, like some of the stuff, I'll think about it later and I'll go, oh, you know, I think I could have shared that better. And you've probably heard some of my answers that you could have shared better. Consider this not the perfect answer, but helping us think about these things. Because that's the goal with this channel is I want to help you think biblically about everything with, with my ministry. I want you to think real thinking, but also really biblically faithful thinking. And I believe that your non-Christian questions have answers. And so many times non-believers out there, they they don't know that there are answers for their questions. They get the question and it's kind of a gotcha question that sticks in their head. And they don't realize that there might be a real thoughtful Christian response that maybe brings them just an inch closer to being open to the gospel of Christ. I hope that that effect happens as a result of today's video. So, thanks you guys for joining. Thanks to Mods for being there. God bless you. Um, Don't know, well, I will not have a video with you on Monday. I don't know when the next video is going to be for the Women in Ministry thing. For sure, I'll be with you next Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time doing another Q&A and you'll be seeing more shorts coming out. Let me know if you guys are, anybody's still sticking around listening at this point. If you like the shorts, if you have feedback about them, please put it in the comments on this video and I'll keep an eye out for that. I'm curious what you think. Thanks.